Morning. It's good to see all of you here on what is not a rainy Sunday. Isn't that amazing that we can get together on Sunday mornings and it not be raining? Now, I don't want to mess it up for next week, but I sure do like it this week. And I, I know, I hope you guys do as well. What a beautiful day that we have outside to be able to come to this place to worship the Lord. But a beautiful day to be on the inside, to be with God's people and to be able to worship the Lord together. I invite you to take your Bibles with you. I hope that you have them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 as we continue our, our uh, series through this book. And, and we're going to continue this morning. We're going to look at verses 28 through 34 of Mark chapter 12. And as you're making your way there, I thought I would just... Uh, Remind some of you, you may have been with us, uh, you may have known that, that last uh, year at the, after Christmas, uh, my wife and I, along with Pastor Ted and his wife Tracy, we, we took a, a trip together, the, the four of us, out to San Diego, California. And we did that for us to celebrate our, our mutual 20th wedding anniversaries together. And we, we chose the place that we were going to go stay in, in San Diego, and then we bought our, our plane tickets which we got at a really good price at that point because we did it toward the end of summer, first of, of, of fall. And uh, we chose to stay out there over right after Christmas and stay over New Year's. It was only a couple of months later, however, that uh, long after we planned our, our trip and gotten our tickets purchased and, and, and everything, that, that they announced that the Georgia Bulldogs would be playing in the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day in Pasadena, California, and I just really believed that I owed it to myself. <laughs> Being a lifelong Georgia Bulldog fan, I owed it to myself to see exactly how far San Diego was from Pasadena, because I didn't have any idea. And I looked it up, and you know, it was only two hours away. And I thought, wow, that's not far at all. Got my wheels turning. I started talking about it a little bit. I asked some other people. Some of you are in this room. I said, what do you think about that? And you know, the, the, the general idea was that it would be a shame to be all the way out in Southern California and to be that close to the Rose Bowl and not actually go to the game. And so there's three other people that are going to be on that trip with me. And you should know that Ted and Tracy, they love sports. They love football. They're Georgia Tech fans. Now, I'm a Georgia Tech fan, too. I know some of y'all don't think that that's possible, that you can be both. I actually am, but they're, they're strictly Georgia Tech fans. And so I knew I was going to run uphill to that, and then I had my wife. And my wife could not care less about sports, and particularly football. So I knew I was going to have a hard time, but I said, you know, I believe, people, we owe it to the folks that are back in the state of Georgia who desperately want to come out here and see those dogs play but can't get a ticket right now because the plane fly, the, the, the flights have tripled by that point. I think we owe it to them to go see this game and to report back to them what happened because they would love to be here. And ultimately, I made the motion that we go and go to the New Year's Day Rose Bowl parade and then go on to the ball game after that. And would you believe I got a second and a unanimous vote that we all did that. And so... On New Year's morning, we got up really, really early, and we drove up the coast, and we went to the game. And here's the best part about it. I got my Georgia Tech buddy, Ted, to purchase my Rose Bowl ticket on his credit card. That was the coolest thing that I did. That was, that was the best thing. And I got him to wear a Georgia hat to the game, so it was awesome. If you'll remember, the, the, that Rose Bowl was an instant classic, and, and it was one of the most exciting games, quite frankly, that I've ever seen. Uh, the dogs won, but that's, that, that's really 
the icing on the cake. What happened later on is we, is we drove back down to San Diego when the other three in the car were asleep and I was driving. And I'm driving back and I'm just thinking to myself, what a cool day. I mean, what a great experience. One that I probably won't get an opportunity to, to experience again and to be able to experience that Rose Bowl parade itself and then to go to the game. And, 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 and it really dawned on me that what I had thought and what others had said to me was really true. It really would have been a shame to have been that close and not to have gone to the game. It would have been a shame to have been, to been out there and be that close to the stadium and not gotten in. Maybe you've had an experience like that somewhere along your life. What I want you to know is that this morning, as we read our text from Mark chapter 12, we are going to be introduced to someone who got close to something that is infinitely superior to a college football game. We're going to be introduced to someone who got close to something that will not just last a few hours with a champion crowned at the end of it, but to something that was infinitely greater. We're going to meet somebody who got close to a kingdom, to a kingdom that will last for eternity, on whose throne will sit a king who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who will never be dethroned. This morning we're going to be introduced to a man who got really really, really close to the kingdom. Yet sadly, as far as we know, he never got in. A man who, as the title of my sermon suggests this morning, was so close to the kingdom, and yet he was still so far away. I want us to begin reading there in verse 28 this morning. Hear the, the setup for what, what takes place and hear how Mark describes Jesus' response to this man. The Bible says there, Then one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God. And there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to come to this place, to be able to open your word, that word that you have authored and given to us that explains who you are, tells us about ourselves. God, I pray that today as we just concentrate on just a few verses of this text that you would help us to push out all the distractions and all the, the things, the stuff that we may have brought into this place with us. Father, help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is open to that which you would have us to know and to understand and learn about you. 
So, Lord, I just ask that you would exalt yourself and glorify yourself through the time that we spend studying your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. If you've been tracking with us in this gospel, you'll know that in the flow of, of Mark's narrative, this interchange that occurs between Jesus and the scribe is actually the third interchange that has happened in a row. Uh, the first one, you might recall, took place between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians. They came to Jesus wanting to kind of trap him and, and to trip him up by his own words by asking him a question about should they pay taxes to Caesar or not. And then right on the heels of that, the Sadducees came. And the Bible tells us there that they were insincere in their question, but they had a question to Jesus. They wanted him to ask uh, answer about the resurrection. And, and Mark tells us that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so we know that they were trying to trap Jesus as well. Well, Mark tells us that all the while that these two interchanges are going on, evidently a man is standing off to the side. He's a scribe. He's an Old Testament scholar. He is a lawyer by trade. He stands off the side and he hears these questions going back and forth between these groups and Jesus. And apparently he was amazed. He was mesmerized by Jesus. Perhaps Perhaps what amazed him and mesmerized him was the fact that Jesus had the ability to just calmly dodge all the bullets that were being fired at him by his opponents. Perhaps it was that he was amazed by Jesus' ability to think clearly and his logic and his, his command of Scripture in all the ways that he responded to these fellows. Whatever the case may be, having, having listened and seen these interchanges occur, this, this scribe, this man who had been watching and listening... He comes and he wants to ask Jesus a question. Now, when we read Matthew's version of this account, we find out that he too is a Pharisee. And he is also coming to test Jesus, but we do not get the impression that he's coming to test Jesus with some kind of nefarious or devious motive. He truly thinks that he can ask this question that's been burdening him for a while and that Jesus can provide him an answer. Therefore, what I want you to notice is the first point that I've given to you on your outline this morning. What we see in this text here is that the scribe asked Jesus a big question. A big question. Now, I've chosen the word big on purpose because he wants to know something big. He wants to have a weighty, he's got a weighty answer, uh, question that he wants to ask. Mark tells us, perceiving that Jesus had answered his other interrogators well, asked him, which is the first or the foremost commandment of all? What's the greatest commandment? Now, we, we of course know of the Ten Commandments that we find in the Old Testament, but, but you might also be interested in knowing that according to rabbinic tradition, they had added 613 more laws on top of those ten so that if you would obey all those laws, they believed that you could never get close enough to the, law, to the real law to ever break it. And of those 613 laws, there was 365 of them that were negative. In other words, one for every day of the year, you could get up and read a thou shalt not do something. They had, they had reduced it or, or expanded it out to that. Not only that, but then they had 248 positive laws. Those were the thou shalt do's that they had put together. So 365 thou shalt nots, 248 thou shalt do's. And what, among all of those 613 laws, some of them were heavier than others. In other words, some of, them were, some of them didn't carry a whole lot of responsibility with them, but others were very dire, very sincere. They carried a lot of weight. And so for this lawyer whose job it was to try to decipher the law, he wanted to know from Jesus, tell me what the most important one is. Tell me what the foremost law is. And Jesus recognizes the sincerity behind the scribe's question. We know that because 
In the previous two sessions, he's always asked the question in return, but this time he actually just answers the man's question. And that's the second point that I want you to see on this morning. He provides for him a challenging answer. And so really what we see is that Jesus provides a demanding answer to the scribe's big question. A demanding answer that Jesus provides. And he goes back and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, the Bible says this. Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. Jesus says, you want to know what the greatest one is? You want to know the, you want to know the head domino? You want to know the one that every other law comes in behind? It's this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because God is one. These verses from Deuteronomy 6 came to be known as the Shema. They came to be known as, as a prayer or, or really a confession that was recited by all pious Jews every day. And notice how it starts. It talks about there being a oneness of God, that God is is one and that oneness of God then transfers over to the fact that our love and devotion to him must be undivided just as he is undivided our love for him must be undivided consequently Jesus says and just as it reads there in Deuteronomy our love for God is demonstrated by our loving him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength now, sometimes people come along and they want to say, well, those four categories is how you can break down the human psyche. It's how you can break down the individual person. And so every part of the person can be broken down into one of those, three, those, those four components. But uh, they, they argue that the heart is one part of you, the soul is another part, and so is the, the mind and the strength. But I understand this text to be much more comprehensive than that. I understand that when, when this text is given and when Jesus quotes it here and when it was originally given in Deuteronomy, I understand that rather than seeing this command as being something that breaks down an individual into four distinct parts, I understand it just means that it takes every part of you to love him. In other words, in other words this is a complete and undiluted and universal command that we are to love God with every fiber of our being. There's not one bit of us that can remain outside of loving God with all that we are. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, heart, soul, mind, and strength were not intended as a breakdown of a psychological analysis of human personality. They simply mean that everything was to be devoted to a loving God. And then he writes this. I love this quote. He says, it does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of it. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Therefore, when we understand the command this way, we recognize this what Sinclair Ferguson has said. He said, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. Think about that. God wants the whole of your life devoted to him for the whole duration of your life and what that tells us is that this is certainly the first part of a very demanding answer that Jesus gives but he goes on and says something else that's also demanding he's not done he says the whole life devotion to God for the duration of your life will be further demonstrated by loving your neighbor as yourselves in other words the scribe this scribe only asked for the first or the foremost command Jesus says I'm gonna give you two 
Why? Because he says, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's one wing of the plane. There's another wing that goes on that plane to make it fly. And the other wing comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18, that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That comes in Deuteronomy 6. And then this, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus says a real true love for God can't really exist in isolation of your love for your fellow man and love for your fellow neighbors. In other words, you can't love God unless you love those created in the image of God. That really became a central position and, and a real push that John talks about in, in his epistles, particularly in 1 John. 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21, he says this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, John pulls no punch. He says, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And then verse 21, he says, In this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. When John writes what he writes here, he's only parroting what Jesus has already stated very clearly in answering this scribe. And, and as James Brooks has provided a helpful summary, Jesus says this, He showed that it was impossible to really love God without loving neighbors. Love for God is expressed by loving others. Now, that is certainly a demanding answer that Jesus has provided to this very big question that the scribe has asked. And, and, and then Mark goes on and records the next thing that our text presents to us. The next point on your outline is this. The scribe then responds to Jesus with a thoughtful affirmation. A thoughtful affirmation. Notice what the scribe said to Jesus in reply. He says, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. Now, I can't help but smile a little bit at that and think, if you only knew to whom it was that you said these words. If you only knew who exactly you were saying, well said, teacher, you have said the truth. The man from whom nothing but truth could ever come out of his mouth. Nevertheless, I think that it shows that this man did not have a devious motive in asking the question to begin with. I think he was honestly there attempting to try to gain an answer to a question that was truly on his mind, a weighty question that he had. But I want you to notice he repeats Jesus' words virtually the same back to him. And then he gets to the end. He says, doing all these things that you've described, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as yourself, he says, you know what? Verse 33, that is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe understood that what Jesus had said brought love of God and love of man together into a, a coalesced whole that was greater than anything that one could do outwardly, externally, through sacrifice. In fact, I'm even reminded of, of what the prophet Micah writes in Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul and then he answers his own question he says he has shown you oh man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God see I believe 
In light of what this scribe replies back to Jesus, I believe that he shows that he understood that heartfelt obedience to the Lord was, as this Old Testament passage, among others, indicates, far more important than any ritual that he could ever engage in. The scribe's response was indeed wise, and it was thoughtful. It was a thoughtful affirmation of Jesus' words. And yet, following that response and that affirmation of Jesus' answer, Jesus says to him these words, which just continue to stop me in my tracks. You are not far from the kingdom. In other words, Jesus says, you're close, but you're not in. You've gotten within sight of the kingdom, but you're not inside it yet. And it is this response by Jesus that actually alerts us to the fact that though this scribe asked a very big question, a very weighty question, a very important question, it's not the most important question that this text brings to light. In fact, I believe that Jesus' response to this scribe telling him that he was close to the kingdom but not in it would have shocked the man. And I believe that Jesus intended for it to shock him in order to cause this scribe to ask the greater question, the bigger question. In fact, the fourth point on your outline this morning is this, the biggest question. You see, considering that Jesus has just told this man that the foremost and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and considering the fact that the scribe has said, well said, teacher, you have got it right. The truth is you are exactly right about what you say. But then to hear Jesus respond back to him, you are not far from the kingdom. Well, I believe that that would have caused this scribe to ask, well, why am I not in? What prevents me from being in? Why am I still out? After all, I agree with you, Jesus. I categorically affirm that loving God and loving others it lies at the heart of the commandments. Therefore, how can I still remain outside the kingdom? Tell me why I'm still on the outside looking in. Friends, I want you to know that is the infinitely greater question that this text begs us to ask. It focuses their attention away from the command itself and back on the one who gave it, back upon Jesus. You see, as we noted earlier, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you know what that means? You know what that, what that truly means for you and I? It means that we've got to give him everything, that we hold nothing back from him, that we sacrifice everything that we have, that we do that for all of our lives. Never once putting our own interests ahead of his. Never once faltering in our allegiance and our obedience to him. Never once allowing anything or anyone else to come in front of him. Now, when you truly consider the implications of that, how many of us can honestly raise our hands and say, I've loved God just like that all my life. From the moment that I was born until this very moment, I have loved him with everything in me, never once falling away. How many of us can say that? Not a one of us in this room can say that. The truth is, the Bible tells us from the prophet Isaiah, he tells us all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. Each of us have fallen woefully short of loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind and all of our strength. 
And that's not just where the bad news ends. The truth is each one of us have fallen woefully short of loving our neighbor as ourselves too. You see, the implication of loving your neighbor as yourself goes far past just simply saying that you love them. It necessitates living sacrificially to the point of putting yourself at a disadvantage so that you can see others put into a place of benefit. That's what the whole story of the Good Samaritan teaches us. And it tells us that our neighbors are not just people that look like us and act like us and believe like us. Loving our neighbors as ourselves necessitates engaging in practical deeds of mercy and kindness even when inconvenient and costly. And it means refusing to draw artificial boundaries in order to avoid getting involved. Why? Because loving God means you love those created in God's image. Understanding that then, who of us can raise our hands and say, I've always loved my neighbor as myself. My whole life, I've always loved everybody else as much as I love myself. None of us can. Not a one of us in this room have ever loved our neighbors perfectly. So you see, you and I can read this passage and we can mentally affirm and agree with orthodox teaching that Scripture says. We can say, Amen, Jesus. We're to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. But the problem is, none of us have ever done that. None of us have ever lived our lives according to God's perfect law. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. And therefore, rather than Jesus' words telling us how we can get into the kingdom, what they actually do is tell us that none of us will ever get in because none of us have ever lived up to that standard. But praise the name of Jesus because He did. You see, the Scriptures reveal to us that Jesus truly did love the Lord his God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind and with all of his strength. And he demonstrated that love through his obedience. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says this, but that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father give, gave me command, so I do. He said later in John, earlier in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And here's one of my favorites from John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus equates doing the will of God with that which sustains him. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The passion, the love, the zeal of God for the Father is demonstrated that in that everything he ever did was an act of obedience to the Father. But the obedience that Jesus demonstrated that he loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength didn't just stop there. He also loved his neighbor as himself. And one of my most favorite passages that I told you is very few weeks goes by that I don't go back and quote from Philippians 2. I'm always reminded of this. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. David Gooding, he has written that since Jesus is God, technically, we were not his neighbors, nor was he ours. 
Nevertheless, he chose by his incarnation to come where we were. And in spite of the fact that humans hounded him to a cross, he rescued us at his own expense and he paid in advance the, most the, the cost of the completing our redemption and perfecting us for unimaginable glory. Consider this. Jesus came. Jesus came to a people who refused him and rejected him despised him, deserted him. John's gospel says he came into his own and his own received him not. Ultimately, in their hatred of him, they took him and they beat him and they whipped him and they ripped the beard from his face. They spit upon him and they slapped him. And then they forced him to carry his own cross beam up Golgotha's hill where they laid him down on the cross and then they robbed him of every earthly human vestige of of, of desire by stripping him naked and they laid him there and they nailed him to a cross all the while mocking him making fun of him and sneering at him and then they raised him up and left him there to die why why would Jesus subject himself to that kind of treatment and that kind of death well he did it so that he might become one who loved his neighbor as himself you see Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him, Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, friends who may be sitting here on the edge and on the fringe trying to understand what this whole gospel is about, what this Bible is about, what this church is about, why we're here, I want you to know that at our very core, this church and this Bible and this gospel is about God demonstrating his love towards sinners just like you and just like me by sending Jesus, his one and only begotten son, to atone for my sins and for your sins. And the Bible says that greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, Jesus loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and with all of his soul, and with all of his mind, and with all of his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He did it perfectly, just as the law demanded, in ways that you and I never have, nor could we ever do. And therefore, the biggest question that this text demands then, in fact, the biggest question in this life, is how does a sinner like me, somebody who has not loved God with all my heart or with all my soul, all my mind or all my strength, and somebody who has not loved my neighbor as myself, how does somebody as unfit and unworthy like me get into the kingdom of God? If, as Jesus tells this scribe, it is possible to be close and yet not in, then how does one get in? Well, the question is answered this way. Notice my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon and sentence is this. To move from being close to the kingdom to being in it requires more than simply embracing the command to love God and others. We must respond to the gospel call of the Savior who has perfectly lived out that command. David Garland writes this way. He says it's not enough to just approve of Jesus' teaching. One must submit entirely to his authority. The scribe, he called Jesus teacher. He believed that his words were good. But you notice he failed to call him Lord. 
He failed to call him the one who was his authority. In other words, he failed to recognize the true and great importance of Jesus. He failed to submit to him. And what that tells us is that you don't get into the kingdom by simply recognizing the value of God's word. You get into the kingdom by recognizing the worth of the king of that kingdom. So what does recognizing the worth of that king require? Or maybe I can ask it this way. What does it mean to respond to the gospel call of the Savior? Well, the Bible says that you must first come to the realization that you are a sinner and that you stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. Next, you must come to understand that the Scriptures teach that if you will confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And brothers and sisters, friends who may be here thinking about this this morning, the only reason we can ever be forgiven of our sins and cleansed from all of our unrighteousness is not because of something that we can do to atone for our own sins. It only comes from what Jesus has done for us. Therefore, the gospel calls us to humility. It calls us to repentance before the Lord our God. And in that humility and repentance, we must believe in Christ. Believe that He will save you. And then you must crown Him as Lord of your life and you must begin to walk in obedience to, the, to His will and His commands. So let me ask you, in light of the biggest question that you will ever have to answer in this life or in the world to come, have you responded to the gospel call of the Savior? Have you humbled yourself before Him, repented of your sins, trusted in Christ, and received His grace and mercy? Friend, what the, Jesus says to the scribe, telling him that he was not far from the kingdom, that tells you that you can be very knowledgeable about the Bible. It tells you that you can come here and sing these songs that we sing, note by note, word by word, know them by heart. You can put on the front and pray the nicest, sweetest, long-flowing prayer as possible. But if you have not repented of your sins and trust in Christ to save you, then you are lost. Just that, like that scribe, you can come to this place and get close and yet still be so far away. Friend, I want you to know that being on the outside looking in, no matter how close to the kingdom you may be, means that you're still on the outside. What a shame it would be be this close to be this close to the kingdom to be this close to salvation to be this close to heaven's eternal joys and not get in I want you to know the good news that these scriptures declare is that today is the day of salvation salvation the doors of the kingdom are open to you and therefore I invite you to repent of your sins to trust in Christ and let Him be your Lord. Do not let it be said of you, you are not far from the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.